0: Hey, it's Alan Carter. Here's what's on the podcast today. Aaron O'Toole wins the conservative leadership race. And the Halton District School Board wants clarification on back-to-school plans. All that coming up. Let's get to it. It is Monday. Uh, You may be uh, thrilled to hear this. Zoom has gone down. In, much part, in many parts of the United States, perhaps even here. Not sure, haven't been on a Zoom call myself this morning, but if you have had a Zoom call canceled, you're probably thinking to yourself, hallelujah, hallelujah, because I think that is one of the worst things about the pandemic, is it not? All these Zoom calls are on now, all the time, and everybody talking over each other. But I'm back, I'm back from a week away, a week in the wilderness, well, not the wilderness, mostly cottage country. But I speak of the wilderness because my question for you for the next little while is the following. Is the conservative party on the way to the wilderness, politically, electorally? Is the election of Aaron O'Toole, does that mean that the social conservatives have triumphed? And then one more time, as we go to a federal election, large swaths of this country in urban centers, and suburban centers, we'll take a look at that and go, you know, that doesn't really, yeah, you know, I don't like the guy with the wee thing and the black face and all that. I don't like that guy, but I don't know about this whole social conservative thing. I don't know about it. Because that's the truth of the matter, as you know. That progressives, as you frame it, and the pollsters will tell you this, that progressives make up, you know, a larger portion of the electorate. And it's just a question of whether or not you can capture the sort of the middle, that middle ground. And that's what the liberals have been able to do. That's what they were able to do the last time around against Andrew Scheer. I want to take you through what happened late last night and early this morning. Uh, Let's get to the results. This is the moment. When Aaron O'Toole is declared the winner.
1: The results for the final test Mr. McKay, 14,528 points. Mr. O'Toole, 19,271 points. Aaron O'Toole is the new leader of the Conservative Party of Canada. Congratulations, Mr. O'Toole.
0: That is Lisa Wright with the announcement. That was after a six hour delay due to glitches with the ballots. Aaron O'Toole taking 57% of the votes on the third. And final ballot. Peter McKay was thought to have this thing in the bag from the get go. But that obviously was not the case, and in many ways being first the perceived front runner in any of these uh, any of these contests is the worst place. To be. We see that time and time again, most often in a delegated convention, but even here, where Mr. O'Toole took lessons from the last time around when he came third, he ensured that he was the second choice for the majority of voters. And that's what put him over the top in third place. Well, we're going to get to the whole thing about social conservatism, and I want your take on some of this over the next two segments as we begin to talk about the new political reality with a new leader for the Conservative Party in Canada. 416-870-6400. Let's talk about social conservatism because Mr. O'Toole positioned himself as the, quote-unquote, true blue Conservative candidate. The true blue Conservative candidate. Candidate And that meaning, I think, was, you know, pretty clear to a lot of conservatives. He based his uh, campaign in the beginning out of Calgary, he said he's a Westerner, you know, the Western candidate, even though he's from Durham. Here quickly is Abigail Beeman on who is... Erin O'Toole.
2: He is a former Harper cabinet minister. He is a uh, 12-year veteran of the uh, Royal Canadian Air Force. Uh, he is a GTA, Greater Toronto Area MP from Durham, uh, a longtime time MP. Uh, and uh, I think a lot of people are now just starting to learn who he is here. He was not the perceived frontrunner in the race. That was Peter McKay.
0: And Peter McKay wants McKay against, again, proving... Uh, political truism in Canada, and that is red Tories are an endangered species. You cannot, it appears, win as a red Tory, not a leadership, at least. Perhaps you're more electable at a general election, but in terms of leadership, for a conservative party, being a red Tory, that's not going to get you there. Here is Mr. O'Toole, Aaron O'Toole, last night in his speech where he thanks those who helped him win.
2: Most of all, thank you to the tens of thousands of Canadians from coast to coast to coast who voted for me. You put your faith in me to lead this historic party, and I'm honoured and humbled. I promise you, I will not let you down. Today, you have given me a clear mission to unite our party, to champion our Conservative principles, to show Canadians what we know so well, that Justin Trudeau and his team are failing our great country. We must continue to point out liberal failings and corruption, but we must also show Canadians our vision for a stronger, prosperous, and more united Canada.
0: That is the new Conservative leader, Aaron O'Toole. In his early morning, or late night, depending on where you were in the country when it was happening, his early morning speech Uh, his victory speech, winning the leadership. Now, here is Mr. O'Toole with, I think, the key part of his speech last night. This is the part that he is going to have to pivot to. A lot of people are were surprised by Aaron O'Toole. You look at his voting record and you know his policies and basically where he'd been politically prior to this run, and it did seem like he pivoted to try and bring in that social conservative vote, which is not being courted uh, by the McKay camp and whether or not that really lines up with his personal beliefs. Here is Aaron O'Toole with his big inclusion speech.
2: Because I believe that whether you are black, white, brown, or from any race or creed, whether you are LGBT or straight, whether you are an indigenous Canadian, or have joined the Canadian family three weeks ago, or three generations ago, whether you're doing well or barely getting by, Whether you worship on Fridays, Saturdays, Sundays, or not at all, you are an important part of Canada.
0: That is Aaron O'Toole making his pitch to a wider blue tent. So, what about social conservatism? If you court a social conservative uh, constituency to win a leadership, does that sink you in a federal election? Well, provincially we have seen that both Doug Ford, to some extent, and much more prior to that, Patrick Brown, were able to actually court that social conservative vote, which really in Ontario represented the push to overturn the uh, the sexual education curriculum. Remember all of that? Doug Ford, you know, courted that. Tanya Granick allen brought her sort of onside. And then the first opportunity he could get, he tosses her as a candidate and sort of moves slightly away from it. And now we have a new sexual education curriculum, which is not terribly different than the one we had before so it can happen the question is you know in a federal election if the liberals can say well look you've said free vote on abortion even though i know you say that you're pro choice but well so anyway let's get to the lines and line 1 jason is on the line can you be elected in this country if you have any kind of a social conservative taint to you at all
3: <laughs> uh, interesting question I personally believe that uh, religion and politics should be completely separate of one another but you can't uh, you can't uh, understand that there's large sections of the population that require representation and they're entitled to it they're Canadian citizens who vote and pay taxes um, I just wish that the parallels weren't being drawn with Aaron O'Toole and social conservatism Um, because that might not be his belief system, but he is trying to represent people that do require a voice, and just because they think differently than you or I might doesn't mean they don't require representation. And I think that it's unfair if you're going to just look at social conservatism, which I think a lot of people assume are Christians or Catholics, when there are other religions in Canada that may not vote conservative, and there are large portions of them that have very unpalatable views of gay and lesbian marriage
0: I, I think you, you you make a good point. I mean, when you when you say social conservative, I, I think that we we you know we default to this uh, caricature. but nevertheless, the the fact of the matter is that social conservatism has a habit. Of infringing on the perceived rights of others, whether it's same-sex marriage, whether it's access to abortion, whatever it is. So, so the concern on a large part of the electorate is going to be: we can't let that get into power because that is going to curb the rights and freedoms that we have fought so hard to win.
3: I think it's a giant boogeyman that uh, the the liberals tend to revert to when they don't have a better argument. Um, most. Uh, people that I know that are uh, that are religious uh, are very live and let live type people. They're, they're not concerned. They want to have their own belief system. And I don't know many people that are really interested in debating uh, gay or lesbian rights or uh, abortion. Most churches that I know are trying to attract new followers by uh, reaching out to those communities um, versus, you know, certain religions that may not be as open to that. And I think that um, you know, labeling people as social conservative uh, is really a stigma, and we wouldn't put up with it if we were talking about anybody but uh, Christians.
0: Thank you, Jason. I appreciate your call. That is an uh, interesting perspective, and I think an important one to just kind of get out there. Uh, I, I, I think my my central question, though, still is, you know, just in real politic terms, you know, if, if you court a social conservative constituency to win a leadership, does that hobble you if you're Aaron O'Toole and you're going into an election perhaps as soon as this fall It is possible? Why does this country hate red Tories so much? Why is it that a red Tory just simply cannot win a leadership of a conservative party? It just seems impossible. I mean, we have a mayor in this city, in Toronto, who probably, I think you should you could accurately call him a red Tory. So there's one in office. No, no, go ahead, spot another one. Go ahead, find one. Peter McKay right now thinking, well, I guess as a red Tory, I wasn't in the lead after all. Erin O'Toole, of course, is the new conservative leader. What does that mean for the possibility of an election coming right up as soon as this fall. Brian Platt is the Parliament Hill reporter for the National Post and joins me on the line. Hi, Brian. Hello. Did you get any sleep last night?
4: Uh, a little bit. I got home uh, somewhere around 2.30 in the morning, I think, from the convention center, so a little bit of sleep.
0: Here's, here's the silver lining for the Conservative Party. Is that nobody cared going in? Nobody was watching. Canadians didn't even know it was happening. So therefore, you know, the fact that it was delayed all those hours doesn't really matter in the end.
4: Well, it's it's not like this is the first time this has happened. Uh, I don't know if uh, you will definitely recall that the uh, Ontario PC Convention, they had to send everybody home in 2018 because they couldn't get a result in time, at least at this case, because of COVID-19. They didn't have a room full of people waiting for a result.
0: Yeah, I I remember that I was there that night and the saddest thing I ever saw in my life was when they lowered the uh, unfurled balloons, (laughs) the balloons that had not dropped from the ceiling, still encased in the mesh and took it off sadly. Undropped balloons are just the saddest thing. But Brian, tell me about Aaron O'Toole and how much should I make of his courting of social conservatism?
4: Well, the way this race shaped up, it ended up giving social conservatives a ton of influence the the party set up a very high threshold uh of entry in fact i uh i'm pretty sure it's the highest threshold of entry any leadership race in canada has ever had which is that to get on the final ballot you had to raise three hundred thousand dollars and just just as a fee to pay not even to run your own campaign that was just money you had to hand over to the party in order to qualify for the ballot and um, along with signing up signatures of 3,000 people spread across the country, which is also a pretty hard thing to do. And, there, and they, it all had to be done within about two months. And so the only people really who could qualify for the final ballot were people who um, had a lot of name recognition already. So Peter McKay and Aaron O'Toole as a previous leadership candidate also um, qualified for that, or people with a very well-organized support base, even if um, their name recognition was almost none. And social conservatives are just very, very good at organizing for leadership races. And so what that meant is, of the four candidates who qualified, you had Peter McKay and Aaron O'Toole, who you know were well-known candidates with strong backing uh, from, from, the, from the party's caucus. And then you had two social conservative candidates who nobody had ever heard of before, but who had a very well-organized um, membership drive. And so that was less than Lewis and Derek Sloan. And the, the final ballot shaped up where half the candidates were so were, had, had social conservative backing.
0: And, and then it was the fact that Mr. O'Toole was successful in courting those social conservatives from the other camps to make him the second choice. And this
4: is... You know, O'Toole ran in the 2017 conservative leadership race that Andrew Scheer won, and, and and if people recall in that race, Maxime Bernier was seen as the favorite from the beginning, but Andrew Scheer had a had a very uh, clear strategy of I'm we use a ranked ballot, and so unless somebody wins outright with 50 percent of the vote on the first round. This goes multiple rounds. And so picking up support from the other candidates can be a really good path to victory. And that's what Andrew Shear did in twenty seventeen. That's how he caught up to Maxine Bernier was he courted support from voters of the other candidates. And Aaron O'Toole's campaign Aaron Tool finished third in that race and so, and he watched Andrew Shear pass him and win. And they came into this race with that strategy from the beginning. We're going to make sure that even if, you know, we don't have somebody decides to vote less than Lewis or Derek Sloan ahead of me, they'll put Aaron O'Toole on the ballot before they put Peter McKay. That was Aaron O'Toole's strategy right from the start, and it worked.
0: Speaking with Brian Platt, who is the Parliament Hill reporter for the National Post, uh, from the Liberal perspective, how much do the social conservative supporters, or or, or at least the the sort of courting of them, how much does that have the Liberals licking their lips in terms of a future federal election?
4: They will. There's no doubt the Liberals will use this as a um, talking point against Erin O'Toole, but there is a really, really big difference between Erin O'Toole and Andrew Scheer, which is that Andrew Scheer actually was a social conservative. Andrew Scheer was personally pro-life and, and had other um, personal beliefs. That were on the social conservative side of the spectrum. And so when Andrew Shear got asked about these things in the October election, he never had a good answer for it, which is kind of amazing because it was the most predictable liberal line of attack of, you could imagine. Everybody knew this was coming, and Andrew Shear still did not have good answers. Erin O'Toole, throughout this leadership campaign, has said, I am pro-choice. Uh, I'm in favor of same-sex marriage. He is socially liberal on on a lot of these issues and but the the promise he made was i will allow free votes in parliament on matters of conscience i will not i will you know i respect social conservatives in our party and i'll let even my cabinet ministers if i'm the prime minister will be able to vote freely on issues like this and so i don't think that o'toole is going to fall into the same trap on some of this stuff that andrew Scheer did
2: uh,
0: crystal Ball going forward, uh, a lot of people are you know, saying that the, the confidence vote of the uh, speech from the throne, that that is a dare uh, to the Conservatives. Uh, what's your perspective on that, and do you think we're in for an election coming up right away?
4: The thing to remember is that the Conservatives can't trigger this on their own. The minority Parliament situation means that you've got to have the NDP and the Bloc Québécois and the Conservatives all vote together to to trigger an election. All the Liberals need is not even for one of those parties to vote with them. They just need one of those parties to abstain from the vote, and their government won't fall. And so uh, the Bloc has already come out pretty strongly swinging, saying they want an election. The Conservatives talk a big game about wanting an election. But the NDP, I think, is a little bit more of a question mark. I don't know if they have the money to fight another election campaign right away. And so, uh, I, because of the dynamics of the minority parliament, I'm not. I, I still feel like it would be surprising if we have an election campaign this fall. At the same time, if the liberals keep stumbling the way they have been stumbling, uh, you never know. I mean, that's the fun thing about a minority parliament is uh, we can be in an election pretty much any week.
0: <laughs> and then there will be no sleep for anyone. Yes. Brian Platt is the Parliament Hill reporter for the National Post. Brian, great to have you on. Thanks so much for joining me. Thank you. Here's what I'm less entertained about, and that is the confusion that continues to reign in our back-to-school planning. Uh, Once again, I have the TDSB sending me more information saying, hey, we're going to call you again and ask you whether or not your kids are coming back to school, because last time around when we asked, well, we were just only fooling, And wasn't that we were just only fooling. It's just that the carpet keeps getting yarded out from underneath of us. The goalposts keep moving. All the metaphors. And I can tell you that the Halton District School Board has now sent a letter to the Minister of Education, Stephen Lecce, to say, could we please have a little bit more clarity on what is happening in just a few weeks' time? Andrea Grebentz is the chair of the Halton District School Board and joins me on the line. Welcome.
1: Thank you for having me.
0: What are you asking of the minister?
1: I mean, the bottom line is we are asking the minister to treat school boards as true education partners. That before making announcements that have broad and... Uh, meaningful implications within our board to talk to us so that our experts who are the boots on the ground people who have to implement any changes can tell him what this, what his announcement is going to mean. Because uh, as we saw on August the 13th, uh, by answering a question at a press conference, the minister basically threw a bomb into a lot of board plans.
0: What did he say on that particular news conference?
1: He said that students should be in class at the secondary level for 50% of their time. And that was actually not what was in the guidelines for the plans that boards were made uh, made for their secondary level. Plans that were went through a process that uh, they had to present to the ministry. Individual boards presented their plans to the ministry. The ministry gave feedback. Our board received positive feedback during the presentation, no red flags. And then suddenly he makes this pronouncement, and we were mid-surveying our parents for having their uh, kids return to our facilities. We had to stop that process, put it on pause, Reanalyze, and we actually had to come up with a whole different model. Uh, and it really undermines the confidence, as you were mentioning in your introduction. It really undermines the confidence of the community when things like that happen.
0: There was also the announcement with uh, considerable fanfare in advance of it about, uh, you know, a way to address class sizes, and what the minister announced was that he was going to allow boards to take money, rainy day fund money, because obviously this is a rainy day, and take that money and then apply it to lowering class sizes, because that's a big issue, especially in elementary grades. What does that mean for the Halton District School Board?
1: Unfortunately, it sounded like accessing those reserve funds was some sort of golden ticket. In our board, uh, we actually already used... Uh, we're allowed to allocate up to 1% of our reserve funds yearly towards uh, initiatives within our board. And we use those reserve funds uh, for a program called uh, um, Stop the Gap. Uh, So it's it's to help our older schools, because we have schools that date back to 1867, (laughs) uh, all the way up to today. And you can imagine there are some gaps there with regards to, uh, you know, AC um, and IT and all sorts of things. So every year we put some money towards that. This year we put the money towards COVID because there were not an exceptional amount of funds provided by the ministry uh, in the GSN. So we took already some some funds from our reserve to put to, put towards that. And then we've now been able to unlock another percentage and that would allow us to hire Seventy-eight teachers. That wouldn't put one teacher in every elementary school in our system. We would need twelve hundred teachers to be able to get to a fifteen student-to-one ratio in our elementary system.
0: Not to mention, where are those kids actually going to go? Physically?
1: Exactly. Uh, in many of our, um, in many parts of our board, we have accommodation issues already. South Milton, which if you look at the Halton Region website, they have a map of the hot spots of COVID. Well, South Melton is our hottest spot, and we have no space to put anybody. We are actually begging the ministry right now to allow us to move forward on a school that was originally approved in 2018. We need approval. We've been waiting six months for this approval uh, to To move forward to uh, actually get shovels into the ground uh, for that school, so it's like the ministry is working against us with regards to accommodation in a normal way, and then you pile the pandemic on top of it, and the need to spread out, and we can't just spread out anywhere. We have to, you know, we've been getting offers in. Oh well, we might have some space here and here, but we're talking about young children here. So they can't be public spaces that the community would access. Uh, We can't have children using the same washrooms as the community. Uh, There are very specific um, things that we have to keep in mind when putting students in. Plus, there's always a cost involved and it can cost hundreds of thousands of dollars just to spread out a few classrooms. So uh, you can see (laughs) that there's there's uh, a lot of issues with regards to spreading or, or moving that class size average down to what parents are uh, are talking about, which is the 15 to 1.
0: I'm speaking with Andrea Grubentz, who is the chair of the Halton District School Board. The school board has sent a letter to the Minister of Education asking for some clarification on a number of issues. One of the other things that you raise in your letter, and it really stuck out to me, I believe it was the same day that he announced the unlocking of the Rainy Day Fund, that the minister also announced an investment, I believe it's $50 million, is it, into HVAC, uh, into air conditioning and all that sort of stuff, and it just sort of struck me at the time, was like, well, now, wait a second. This seems to be pretty close to the beginning of school. I I mean, I can't get a contractor to my house, let alone Mm -hmm. an HVAC in schools across the province.
1: Yes, and that $50 million is across 72 publicly funded school school boards. So it's, uh, as we said in our letter, to add even partial air conditioning at a high school costs nearly a million dollars. So we're talking... Uh, Less than that per school board. And the timelines are are just untenable. There's no way we would be able to do any serious upgrades uh, before school starts. So we would be using any funding that we received from that for filters and, um, you know, increased changing of filters and uh, anything else that uh, we could do on a smaller scale. Um it, yeah, large system changes would not happen between now and the beginning of our school year.
0: Uh, Andrea, just to, to wrap up, I mean, I, I live in the TDSB area, but I, I grew up in Burlington. I have family there, and I have kids, too. They're wondering, what in the world do we do? What do we do? So are kids in Halton going back on the 8th? Should they go back on the 8th? Do you have any firm idea what's going to happen?
1: Well, we have uh, in conversations uh, with our staff um, that we had on Wednesday, which was our last board meeting, uh, at this point, this was before our survey was completed, because our survey to parents only finished uh, yesterday. Uh, So to that point on Wednesday, we were moving forward with the 8th. That does not mean that it's carved in stone at this point. So uh, people need to... Uh, please be flexible. That may change. We may end up with a staggered start. It depends on what the, what the data is telling us and what our system needs. So we are asking for flexibility. We have staff, all of our staff want students to achieve and have very good well-being. So we want to make sure we're doing everything we possibly can to the best of our abilities. And within of course our funding ability. So um, I I trust our staff that they are doing that.
0: Andrea thank you so much for being on the program today.
1: Thank you for having me.
0: That is Andrea Gravens, who is the chair of the Halton District School Board and no matter where you have kids in this province I'm sure you have questions. In Toronto, as you may know, they have already said we're pushing it back a week, so that's an extra week of vacation for the kids, and they're excited about that. But as parents, I can tell you that it's not helping. Uh, we, you know, whether or not the kids are going back, there's an expectation. I think we all know this come the, you know, the Tuesday after Labor Day, there's a ramp up in all sectors. And I don't think it's going to change just because of COVID-19. And so, you know, for parents who have struggled to try and keep their kids occupied and try to keep them cared for throughout the summer, now we have another week of delay and we have all of this uncertainty. That is the podcast for today. Don't forget to catch The Alan Carter Show weekdays starting at noon.